Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. And today we're joined by Rico Wojtulovic, who is Head of Housing and Planning Policy at the House Builders Association, which is in turn the House Building Division of the National Federation of Builders. He sits in a variety of industry bodies, such as the Construction Leadership Council and Natural England Development Industry Group. But he's also the owner of Connect Communities, which is a company that trains people to take advantage of electronic communication, primarily to tackle isolation and loneliness. So a very warm welcome, Rico. Let me just start with that point. You must have seen as part of this Connect Communities, you must have seen a huge demand during the COVID lockdown. Or then, then again, you might have been scuppered by the lockdown. Can you just tell us a little bit briefly about what uh, Connect Communities is and uh, how you're getting on with it? Really, in 2012, I kind of recognised that many older people were being left behind by accessing services. So what could I do to help? And I recognised that, yeah, giving people laptops was one solution. But the more I did that, the more laptops I shared. I got them from schools and then did them up. Um, I realised that actually a lot of people didn't have as much connection with their families. I worked previously in mental health and physical health. So I realised how important that was. And, yeah, it's interesting when you kind of get a a 92-year-old to learn how to use a tablet. And and the joy really is connecting them with their family and their family connecting back. And the secondary element of that is I could start something off and then a carer could pick it up. And that builds relationships between the carer and the older person if they are isolated and lonely. Um, I worked in a lot of housing associations kind of where they had single rooms uh, and they would live in those rooms and have kind of shared facilities. They really didn't see many people apart from the carers. So building all those relationships, I just thought was a very obvious thing for me to do because I had the skills anyway. So fantastic. But let me just move on to the discussion proper. And we always start off with this conversation about your biography, where you're from, where you studied, why why it is that you've ended up where you've ended up. So do you want to give us a brief overview? From a Polish immigrant family. uh, And I feel as though I learned a lot on the journey to university. And I went to a grammar school and I'd never seen people act or think like that. It sounds like a bit of a cliche, but but it's really honest. but I think that when I got to university, I had my desire of getting getting a degree because that's what my parents told me. You've got to get a degree. You know, that's, that's the only way to get on in this country. So I thought I'll get a degree and then I'll play professional rugby because uh, I wasn't too bad at that. Um, and at the time, um, a bunch of people were just dropped off in the centre of Birmingham after Poland joined the EU. Uh, and they're all Polish migrants. and They were dumped on a, off a bus and the bus drove away with all this stuff and they were promised jobs and houses and they had nothing. So I organised accommodation and jobs and access to services. I was 22 at this point, 21, and um, just just finished university. And I thought, oh God, what the hell is going on? Why is the council, why isn't the council listening to me? You know, I'm telling them there's no translation services. There's no, uh, these people need help. This is happening in droves. Why on earth aren't we really grasping this? And I think that kind of led me into looking at the impacts that affect people in society. And my degree was kind of based on that anyway. It's called Society in Cities. And I had two amazing lecturers. One was a, a barefooted, sweatpant-wearing socialist. Um, the other one was a tweed-jacketed economist. Economist, And they used to argue on stage. Um, and then they'd have separate lessons where they would have a bit of a conversation with each other and, uh, sorry, uh, about the things the economists were going to be talking about and tell us why they were wrong. But they were best friends. And that really helped me to kind of have a more critical anal- analysis approach to when I look at things. So that experience then kind of helped. Uh, the Polish community, setting up a charity to do that, and then having lots of random jobs to kind of really improve my knowledge about the world and society. So I 
kind of take, made a decision, I should get into politics because that's the best way to change people's lives. So I was a teacher, worked in physical and mental health, helped some political campaigning. And then finally, I tried to save a leisure centre uh, in a place called Aston, or the Aston Arena, because it was in one of the most deprived areas in England. It was not getting any support from the local authority, despite being a key uh, service for a lot of a lot of immigrants that used to use it. Um, you know, a really good Somali base. So I tried to keep that open. I spent two years, and it closed. And I spent all that time fighting with the Homes and Communities Agency, who are now Homes England. And all that planning experience and policy experience got my foot into the door at the National Federation of Builders. And I think they thought to themselves, "What have we got here?" But I think that my knowledge and passion got me the role. Very good, and uh, your ability to talk at length and uh, sell yourself uh, it obviously helped. So, uh, well, very interesting. Uh, so, because you, you're, so that means you're from Birmingham. You studied at Sheffield Hallam, didn't you? I did. Yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. Okay. The the House Builders Association is the subset, and that's a terrible word, I know, but you know, it's it's allied to the National Federation of Builders. Why are those two organisations separate? And why are they needed? So the HBA was set up by a man called Roger Humber, um, and it was set up because small builders really aren't very well supported by government, and they aren't very well understood by industry at large, uh, what they deliver, what they bring, and 75% of my roles is HBA work, and 25% was NFB. And actually, that was a really good mix, because many of the NFB requirements, so your civils, uh, that actually overlaps with a lot of the house building stuff, you know, your town planning, your infrastructure. So the HBA really gave me an opportunity to see what life is like for small builders. Now, the complexity of small builders is there are 330 odd local authorities, each with their own ambitions. So one, lo- one house builder may work across three, they may work across one, but his friend 20 miles away is working under completely different rate rules and regulations potentially, and thought process and site allocations. So it's really important to kind of represent all those points of view because otherwise we kind of have a, a London approach to local issues and that's effectively what planning has been for quite some time so I think we've shifted that debate a little bit uh, and my role my role is just to shift that debate and keep fighting for those smaller builders. All right very good so look I mean just as a, a brief throwaway question there's the NHBC National House Building Council and there's even the Federation of Master Builders uh, which are not what you are so what is a master builder this always annoyed me always irritated me I didn't know what it meant <laughs> Well, I think historically they were kind of a jack of all trades, uh, but close to mastering them all. So, you know, um, you kind of you kind of compare them now to the really experienced site managers or construction directors that, you know, so they know the job and they might have probably done it themselves. So they really understand the whole complexity uh, of delivering a project. So that's how I would define a master right. builder. Good, because actually they're not mutually exclusive, are they? Even though you don't represent the Federation of Master Builders, you can be a member and also be a member of, of your organisation. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. It, we do different things. So okay. we are we like our members to start small and grow or seek strong professional advice. Um, and perhaps they have a different slightly okay. different remit. Um, so look, this podcast is about, well, it's about and targeted at construction professionals, largely architects, but um, more broadly. So your key concerns, kind of very floating concerns of planning, finance, skills, skills shortages, the Building Safety Bill, the Fire Safety Act, all these things which yet haven't been fully resolved in reality. So we'll see how far we get when we talk about them. Your first priority, which you've said, I've read um, online, is uh, to simplify the planning system. Uh, so obviously, good luck with that. And, and your objective is to open up the planning opportunities on small sites. So let's just start with that. What's the problem? What's the solution as far as you're concerned? Well, the problem is the 1990 Town of Country Planning Act moved to a plan-based system which meant that 
before that, it was more easy to get these sites forward because you knew your local market, you'd apply for planning, local authorities say, yeah, that's great. Uh, or they'd come together to deliver lots of smaller sites on one larger site. Now, to meet supply, they simply look at the very large sites. Uh, and that means that unless you get a site allocation, you're not really part of their local plan agenda. Effectively, then you're treated as a speculative developer, even if you're building, say, 10 bungalows for local people because you know that local people have asked for 10 bungalows. <laughs> um, so many of our members don't have an issue with selling uh, because they can get these sites forward. Government doesn't recognise that. Now, small sites runs by what's called uh, the minor or major definition of uh, in the planning terms. So that's fewer than 10 homes, so nine homes and below. We really need a medium-sized definition to kind of help local authorities think about what is a strategic way to plan my community rather than nine, you know, 10 and below and 10 and above, which takes us into the hundreds. We need to have, say, a medium site definition of 50 and below, 50 and below or 50 to 9, so that we actually really are able to say, right, there's a small site within a community here. This is brilliant. We can deliver it here. There's a smaller site here. We can deliver that here. And when we want to grow the area, we can deliver this 400 site outside it. Now, currently what's happening is they're delivering the 400 or 500 because it's easier for them to placate their voters and say, it's not in our area, it's around the corner. Um, they're typically right outside the community. So there's you know, le less objection, uh, but it's less strategic. So really those two solutions, that, that solution uh, of a medium-sized site definition and a small site to register would do wonders. And it's not just in terms of delivery. Construction apprentices are trained by small and medium-sized companies and they make up 90% of the training capacity. So without SMEs delivering these sites, you are not going to get a skilled workforce. Okay, and we'll, we'll come on to the requirements or the what you what you argue is the um, necessary development of the construction industry, which isn't uh, faring particularly well in the in the post-pandemic uh, era. But we'll come on to that in a minute. But just very quickly, in terms of this planning issue, uh, you know that, that idea that you know local authorities are meant to be able to resolve these planning applications within thirteen weeks, sixteen weeks, or whatever it might be, obviously hardly ever happens. And as you just pointed out, if you're a large developer, if you're an architect of some substance or a client with uh, lots of uh, capital, you might be able to ride that delay. But sometimes they take years. Uh, so what, what impact does that have on, on kind of small developers, small contractors? Well, we're back to the allocations process again, because developers, small developers now are doing a hand-to-mouth effectively to one site at a time. And that means then you can't plan ahead, whereas larger developers can. And then obviously, because they're PLCs, they can absorb the risk. So Litchfield's research identified that, you know, it takes one and a half years to get planning on a site of 50 to 99 homes and two years for 100 homes. If you see the last year, uh, material prices have gone up by 23%, and that's just in one year, and labour by 12%. So if you're planning a development and you've got to take all your taxation out, because obviously we're the most taxed industry as well as the most regulated industry, if you can't get planning quickly, you can't get on site quickly, and planning isn't just permissions, as I said, you know, planning is the allocations, it's the local policy, it's the condition discharge, it's all these different elements that get you on site. And, and I, I do have sympathy for local authorities because their allocations are stretched, but they make a rod for themselves when they ask for stuff like landscaping, they condition landscaping when they've already been provided the landscaping details. And they do that, many of our members might say, because they're individually chargeable now. So why wouldn't you charge on each one of them? And they also rely on statutory consultees to discharge them. So that's kind of like your water companies, Natural England. Now, if they're a bit slow, that also puts your development back. So 13 to 16 week timescale is a farce. If you look at the data the government provides, it says that we deliver 70% or 80% within the statutory period, which is 13 or 16 weeks. No, 
you include extension of time requests in that. And if you're a small developer and the local authority goes, we need an extension of time request because we've looked at your application on the very last day of the statutory requirement, you're not going to say no because the last thing you want to do is have an argument because you need to get that work done because it's not covering your overheads, it's only delivering on that site. Yeah, I think that's you know well worth pointing out to people who don't fully understand what goes on, that you have a statutory requirement to have a decision made. On the last day, the local authority can say, sorry, we haven't done it yet. Do you mind if we extend? Uh, and that that ticks the box then, that they've actually given you a response within the statutory period, and then they add on another statutory period or another uh, extension length of time. So that uh, that's, um, makes a mockery <laughs> of the target system. But in terms of the cost increases that have occurred within a year, 25% or whatever it is on general materials, as you point out, if you're having a planning decision which is delayed by half a year, then just to be simplistic about it, that might be 12.5% increase in your tender value that you're then going to have to ride. I mean, are, are there kind of disputes waiting to happen or are there already problems occurring on sites with clients saying, you told me it was going to be 100 grand and now it's 150, what are you talking about? Oh, yes. And the public sector, to be fair, has been quite good mitigating some of these and absorbing the costs. Some clients have been quite good as well. Um, and we told members in COVID to make sure that you didn't sign fixed price contracts, or if you did, you put in uh, some sort of mitigation in case the prices went up. Some did, some perhaps had already got into these contracts, or they didn't um, put them in at all. So yes, there are an increasing number of disputes and actually small developers, especially house builders are just gonna absorb them construction companies, it's a lot more complicated because their profit margins are so much lower. Um, all right, well, we'll come, come on to some of these other issues in a minute, but just go back to the, the discussion about the industry which you raised before, where there's around about 300,000 new homes required every year uh, to bridge the gap. Then I think I read somewhere on your website that 35,000 new workers are required to achieve that uh, every year. We've just gone through a lorry driver shortage. Um, if anybody's listening to this in, in 2023, remember back, there's a lorry driver shortage. All these kind of problems could have been predicted, maybe. Were they predicted? Um, were you kind of flagging this up for a long time? You get the gist. How has this occurred? How is it going to be resolved? Yeah, it's my favourite conversation to talk about. So the minute the Brexit referendum uh, result was announced, my first press release was, you must now train enough people to get into the industry, but not just train them, you must ensure that the people that will retain them can have enough of a work pipeline in order to retain them. Separately, you must consider a construction visa, a temporary one, because if you don't get the first part right, you will damn well need the second part. Where are we right now? We desperately need a, a construction, a temporary construction visa. And that's because people don't understand the value of planning. Now I've got a really terrible but good example. In 2016, a, a Nottingham-based member had 76 people on his books with planning uncertainty now because he couldn't afford the overheads. He now has five people in his company. He loves a directly employed workforce. He adored having control over all of that. Now he has to retain those good relations with the, with the local supply chain that perhaps isn't always there. So the issue with the CITB, I believe, is that they, they can't lobby for these sort of changes. I understand that. They should recognise the absolute value in ensuring that the people that train and retain, they're the ones that have got to go, OK, how do we ensure that these people that train can retain? Because otherwise it's the big boys giving jobs, not the smaller guys establishing careers. Construction is an incredible, incredible career. My God, is it an amazing career. You know, you can work anywhere in the world. You can go self-employed. There's always work available. You can 
change the field you're in, you can retrain really easily. Why on earth aren't we promoting it, not just as a good career, but as a career that has longevity and it's longevity because the regulations allow it to be that way. Simple, change the planning process so there's planning certainty. And we're not asking for much. We're just asking that if you apply for planning permission, you get it. That will help small businesses and make sure your procurement process isn't just a bunch of middlemen uh, then uh, employing the, the, the subcontractors to do the work. Give the work to the expert subcontractors in the first place. So do you think that there's a possibility then to recover the idea that UK workers, domestic workers, will join the construction industry and become brickies and goodness knows what, rather than have to import European or further afield labour? Because obviously that's what's caused part of the problem is that it has been European migrant labour. So therefore, it surely it implies that UK labourers aren't willing to do it and we may have to continue that process. Depends on the job. So around 35% of London-based uh, employees were uh, non-UK uh, and around 4% outside of London. So yes, we need more people to enter the sector. There are British people entering into it. We've got a bit of a problem with colleges because if you get someone in at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, to bricklay inside, well, when they get on site, they suddenly realise I've got to be in at eight o'clock and it's bloody cold. Um, they're not going to be too happy uh, about that job. So you need to ensure that they understand the role they're getting into. And there are some great people that want to do it, but also the DfE, the Department of Education, and uh, the SFA, the Skills Funding Agency. Perhaps they battle a little bit against each other because one would like people to go to university and the other one would like to get technical skills. So I am a big believer that university is not right for everybody. It is a fantastic way to learn, but the majority of people that I know that are in trades earn more than the, the people that I know in uh, that went to university. And there are very few of us that and real high amounts by just by going to university. In terms of the department for levelling up housing and communities, many people out there might not even know that that department exists. It actually has a digital strategy uh, issue for uh, for planning, and I think you've, you've raised this as well with your website, that um, they might make the planning process more accessible. And it's one of those terrible words that gets thrown around. But what does accessible mean as your concern? We've been pitching this for quite some time. Accessible for us uh, means two things. One, that it's more accessible by, by individual people who want to actually engage with it and they can see what's going on in the local area um, with mapping, with local plans, with actual developments. Uh, and secondly, it actually identifies the smaller sites, those infill sites, those garage sites that are available so that when a local authority turns a plan allocation, it doesn't have to rely on 400 homes on a big site. It can go, oh, we can do 40 here, 30 here, six here, and they can build the numbers that way. If digital planning can allow them to understand that value, then when it comes to actually building these larger sites outside of communities, you can have an active travel corridor, the public, uh, public transport corridor, you know, especially if you look at a place like Brighton Hove. With so many cars leaving the city on a daily basis, it's actually very difficult for the city to then justify cutting off any journeys outside the city unless they provide the jobs within it. So you have to grow the city. But you can't do that if your strategy is, well, we can't expand now because we're limited. Um, so you need to actually have time to plan. And when you say expand, are you talking about, you know, green belt encroachment or are you talking about, you know, high rise densification within city centres or don't you care? <laughs> I mean, not care, but you don't mind. I, I think it's both, really. I think that if you're constrained by the green belt, unfortunately, you'll have to expand. We all used to live on green belt, especially down here uh, at some point, and it wasn't defined by law as it is now. But really, you know, I understand the government's 
copped out a little, by, a little bit by moving to localism and then saying, well, you know, we're not going to take the hit. We're not going to build on the green belt. It's up to local authorities to decide that. Unfortunately, some areas are going to have to expand a little bit, especially if you look at a place like Brighton Hove. We should not be a feeder for London. We have a whole coastal regional community and there are many, many around there, you know, in Devon, um, you know, on the East Coast and around Liverpool. Uh, actually, to be fair, the northeast and northwest are quite good at allocating this land for uh, their kind of regional expansion. But we're not down here. We only think of Brighton as Brighton. We don't include your New Havens, your Eastbourne. We don't think about Portsmouth, you know, uh, Worthing. We don't include all these other places. And actually, that is what we really need. Cornwall is desperately crying out for that sort of regional approach. So, yes, I know it's hard. Some greenbelt use will have to, will, will have to occur, um, as well as densification. Let me just move on. Well, actually, there's one final thing on inter- in terms of this kind of uh, technological approach, accessibility approach, is, is BIM, which is uh, that phrase which, you know, it means lots of things to different people. But very often, small-scale operators, architects as well as developers as well as engineers, may not feel invested in it enough, don't feel that maybe their profits enable them to uh, have the full range of access. So is, that, is the BIM technology, the Revit technology, is that something of marginal concern to, to your members, the house building industry, um, or is it something they aspire to, but they want more gradual connection with it? Or is it all going to plan? Oh, it is definitely not going to plan. BIM itself has failed, um, and it's got itself a very poor reputation. And it's failed because the government tried to mandate it by uh, very large contracts uh, or on public sector works that only the largest companies could be part of. Clients didn't use BIM. You know, they, they didn't even request you know Excel spreadsheet to be submitted on how long a kitchen would last if, if uh, the supply chain stored a kitchen. So from the very outset, it was not aimed at SMEs, and that is a small and medium-sized enterprises. So that is a real problem, and it meant that we felt left behind by BIM. Now, as I understand it, they're changing the term to digital construction, which is probably helpful because effectively that's what it is. Um, but how are they going to enable more people to be part of it without leaving people behind? Because the long tail is the industry. It's not the few companies at the top. And we're seeing this in modern methods of construction now. So the government did write a framework which had seven definitions for MMC. Are they adhering to that? Are they heck? They are looking at the first two, which are off-site solutions, and they are mandating them through their public sector works like Home Homings and Homes England, instead of saying, right, what kind of products do you use that are modern methods of construction? Are there any piling solutions? Are there any brought in concrete flooring that is cast elsewhere? They are modern methods of construction. And if we really want an industry that delivers that, so if we look at some, a company called Moduloft, um, who are delivering lofts that can be brought on site and speed up the process, well, that's great for, the, for domestic renovations, but also potentially great for new homes. So how do we inspire those companies to deliver more of those projects? It's not by saying how many offsite homes can you build, it's by creating an industry that can damn well deliver it. And we are so ingenious in this country and there are so many different products out there, but modern methods of construction is just seen as offsite. And if it continues that direction, SMEs will be left behind again and they're the ones that are going to do the training, remember? So how on earth can you leave them behind? Um, two, two conversations which, again, are, are current to the moment and maybe they'll become more popular or maybe they'll disappear in the future. But the discussions about heat pumps um, and you know replacing gas boilers and all the rest of it, again, another government mandate. Coincident with that, the conversation about insulation uh, in as much as heat pumps are only effective 
if indeed they are effective, if you have an insulated property. So what's the viability from your point of view of those two things? I think heat pumps are great. What's not great is the quality and the number of high quality designers of heat pumps. Now, a heat pump can work in any house, any house at all. But if it's in a leaky house that's pretty cold, you're going to be paying a lot of money. And you can design it to work without question, but it's not going to work very well. And the government expects for the price of heat pumps to go down. I can't see that happening. I think that we're quite close to the cost of the heat pump itself. It's the installation costs that are going to be quite high. But the government expects to deliver 600,000 heat pumps by 2028. It's going to do that via the 2025 future home standard. So for those 25 to 28, uh, three years, 200,000 it expects um, heat pumps to be installed, which meets the uh, housing target delivered every year. So if you're going to have to compete for heat pump installers in the domestic market, prices are only going to go up because I think we've only got around 3,000 installers. So, you know, we're going to have to have a huge skilling up the industry. And I, I appreciate heat pumps in many ways because they will help us get through to solutions such as district heating you know which will allow us to have just those kind of shoebox heat pumps in homes and a larger heat pump outside that's brilliant but why on earth are we not talking about solar thermal solar panels for electricity you know thermal storage even electric boilers which are much much more easy to install that then justifies this government's ambition to change the taxation process on uh, electricity and move it potentially onto gas but now it's 23 percent and on gas it's two percent so that would make a justification if more people can get an electric boiler for the meantime. But if you want to deliver heat pumps across the whole of the UK, it is going to cause mayhem and it's going to be damned expensive. And then we move on to insulation. Now, we need to insulate all our homes for a number of reasons. You know, health reasons, I think it's really important. You know, a warmer house will save money for the NHS. But if you look at Insulate Britain lying down in the roads, they would like all homes to be deep retrofitted. Now, you're looking at, 2.5 trillion and you're looking at around 1 trillion if it's just the council homes done to the standard they expect with all the energy requirements so that's all going to come out of the taxpayers wallet and, yeah. and i don't think that's necessarily well received and quite possibly you know external it would have to be external wall insulation i'd imagine because internal has all kinds of repercussions but externally that yeah. means also destroying the entire brick image of terraced houses across this country, um, which, you know, may or may not be a, a good or bad thing. But the final thing to say is obviously the cladding, the cladding scandal, which impacted after Grenfell, was an insulated external system. Uh, and so we have to be a little bit um, also cautious about what it is that we're rushing into. So I think I'm, I'm with you on that one. The, the COP26 is um, with us as we speak. We're in the, the first week of COP, so we'll see what uh, what, what occurs. Uh, let's not get started on that. Uh, so on a... On a <laughs> Basic level, um, I'm, I'm also very interested because I, I try to teach my students um, about tender processes within the within the industry. The fact that, you know, whenever you ask an architect to put a tender, they say, oh, let's go to seven, eight or nine tenders because, you know, you get more choice. But in fact, you're kind of taking the mick out of contractors having to spend an arm and a leg to, to actually tender for this stuff. Yeah. You know, what's the good ways? What's the recommended way of doing it? And what kind of costs are we talking about for, for contractors doing tenders? I mean, some contractors have spent you know, £10,000 a submission. When you're going for seven or eight submissions, you might spend you know, £100,000 to get no work. Yeah. A lot of local public procurement especially, uh, they look for meat, most economically attractive tender. That's not going to suit NFB members very much because uh, we don't want to do crap work. We don't want to have to keep coming back to sites to, uh, to fix things, which often happens, and we know that, because 
many of the public sector come back to our members and say, hey, we've done this work, can you rectify it, please? Really, I think if you're working with contractors, it's communication. So if they didn't score very well, tell them why they didn't score very well. That's a big issue. And members go, I don't understand. I've won this work previously. You know, make sure that if it's about experience, you require experience to get access to a project or to works. Don't make it so that they only have to include projects they've done. Maybe it's work works they've done with others. Have a conversation. You know, don't require too high a turnover. That happens all the time. How many people make that final list? Because the last thing you want is get on a list. You spent £10,000 on an application and then find this 25 other companies or 15 other companies on it or even 10. And you think, well, look, I, you know, I accept competition, but it's a hell of a risk when that keeps happening and happening. So many people are just not doing it anymore and just not, not going for these tenders anymore. I think that the most important part really is to build the relations with people, not be beholden to the rules one of my my big issues with the og process was that some local authorities looked at it and they said well we're just going to go down this route it's easier and they could have done things slightly differently i actually got homes england to change their approach on uh, og tendering so that they didn't just have a 30 home uh, minimum that you would have to use for og you go to 50 homes because a house in london is not the same price as a house in bradford so why on earth would you have exactly the same criteria and those simple conversations work quite well but that didn't translate very well to government and even the unions didn't really understand it was an issue so yeah you could probably have a whole thing about brexit and, uh, and, and og itself in the eu but definitely for a different one definitely <laughs> that's that's uh, over a pint i think we have that conversation um so i think your your point about feedback uh, like, you know, people applying for jobs, it's always good to know why you didn't get the job, you know, so I think feedback's a very important point. And, this, and the other one also is the that thing of making the contractor aware that it might not be fully based on the price, that there might be value-added elements to it, so yeah. that they are alert to that. Uh, there's nothing worse than kind of being the lower price, but then not getting the gig, and you didn't know why. Um, all right, look, very quickly then. I was going to say there's also an element of not, not being trapped by a campaign ambition. So we saw a member recently who spent £2 million on a social housing development, making it look pretty on the outside. And he said to me, look, it's crap on the inside. It's as basic as they come. So why on earth have we gone for that approach? And it's simply to satisfy a baying mob. And so what do you actually want as your outcome? I think that's a really important factor that we need to think about. Okay, brilliant. Um, so since I mentioned Grenfell, we're in this situation, which, like I say, the Building Safety Bill, Building Safety Act hasn't really materialised yet. But um, what's, what's your take on the situation, you know, that there are, and its impact again on your industry, we know the impact on tenants and leaseholders, uh, which is devastating. Um, but what, how is it affecting your guys? We are quite lucky in the fact that it's not affecting our membership too much. But of course, across the industry, it is. You know, first of all, those of that saying, leaseholders shouldn't be held to account. Um, but having spoken with people at government, they're in an invidious position. You know, who do you come for? Product manufacturers, building regulators, assessors, supply chains, designers, architects, you know, uh, clients, um, policymakers. You know, there are so many people that could be held accountable on some, on some level. And it is very difficult and, as per usual, industry is being asked to pick up the bill via property taxation and a, safe, and a safety levy. We understand that, you know, we are government's perennial cash cows. We are the ones that everyone always comes to for paying for everything. Um, members will have worked on some of these projects because a lot of them were meat projects. They are less likely to apply for that work, which I guess helped us to really have a conversation about this rather than a fight. But... But in terms of the way that, you know, the, the discussion about safety, 
um, you know, it's almost like safety comes first. Like, like we talk about energy, carbon is like the dominant conversation. So also safety um, is, seems to be paramount in a lot of these conversations. And for architects, they are the two things which they are now being told are at the forefront of their minds. Carbon, saving you know, the, the, the climate crisis and um, saving lives. Um, I'm just wondering whether you think those are, obviously they are priorities. Your building shouldn't kill people. But at the same time, is that at the forefront? You know, it's, like you say, it's about building homes, isn't it? So are we being slightly distracted maybe by the safety conversation? I think maybe when we're talking about making buildings safe as the priority rather than how we make them safe, yes. Um, I tried, when Rainfell came out, I tried to talk about sprinklers and everyone said we needed sprinklers, but they weren't interested in the low pressure uh, that was available uh, if you go underground or some of the weight bearing issues if you're doing at the top of the building and you think to yourself well do you really care about safety if you're doing a news report and you're not interested in actually how we enable better safety because that then translates to the industry who can then put mitigations in, in in place and we can work together to deliver better safety it's not dissimilar from energy efficiency in homes you know the new standards tell us what needs to be achieved we'll achieve it don't dilly-dally and go around lots of different routes because that then eventually will harm the people that use the buildings. And we do see within the construction industry, companies closing down and when there's an issue and leaving someone else high and dry, it does happen. I know there's a discussion about liability at the minute and how you extend that liability to companies that might shut down. But really, you know, we've, we've got to take safety seriously, but have a regime that's safe and work on it from there. Don't spend years and years talking about what are the issues. Tell us how to make buildings safe and trust in people like the fire service when they have a solution. Don't just throw them under the bus and say, oh, no, that doesn't work when it's been proven to work many, many years in a row. Sometimes there are external impacts that are not that easy to mitigate and you can't always do everything via regulation. OK, very good. So final thing, which uh, you're kind of getting to anyway, since we are maybe talking out there in the ether to established architects or newly qualified architects is there anything any piece of advice you've got for them to say what they always get wrong when they're dealing with house builders i think it might be two-way really because I think sometimes relationships get fractured as we go along so architects are obviously experts in their field but they often forget that so are builders um you know we mentioned master builders earlier they know what they're doing they know when things work and they know why they don't work that level of expertise doesn't always mean that drawings are practicable. SMEs typically do have architects um, because you know, they've got their own reputation to protect and they want to build good buildings. But I think for architects, I think what they need to do is learn some of the burgeoning government ambitions. So passive home principles, not passive house necessarily, but there's passive home principles. That's something the government's going to be including. So as an architect, you can say to a builder, this is coming in, you can achieve this by this, it will help you meet policy. That then creates greater buy-in from the builder who says okay yeah i agree with you but i can't do it like this so it needs to be a bit of a conversation a bit of a to and fro i do hear too often people saying i speak to an architect and they're always right <laughs> when you study for that many years of course you know you, you know things that many of us will never know but um when you've worked on site and you've actually got to build the damn thing things are very different they always flatter the architects. Uh, you, you know how to play the system, Rico. Thanks very much indeed for that. Very, very useful. Hopefully, uh, we'll have roused some interest and concerns uh, with the listeners. Um, but that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. So you can find the House Builders Association on Twitter at NFB underscore HBA. 
I don't know if there's a simple uh, URL recall for House Builders, is there? www.builders.org.uk and and you yourself Rico uh, on Twitter at, at short thought short thought yeah uh, please uh, you know uh, hook up um, so anyway all the listeners thank you very much indeed tune into the professional practice podcasts and listen to our archive if you would we're on SoundCloud and iTunes just click on the links my name is Austin Williams many thanks for listening until the next time goodbye <laughs>